0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Minnesota is known as a healthy state, but when you factor in race, there are huge differences in the health of white Minnesotans and the health of people of color who live here, especially Black, Latino, and Indigenous Minnesotans. State Health Commissioner Dr. Brooke Cunningham is on a mission to change that. She was appointed to lead the Department of Health back in January after Commissioner Jan Malcolm retired. Dr. Cunningham is the first Black woman to hold the position. Previously, she was an assistant commissioner overseeing the new health Health Equity Bureau at the department. Dr. Cunningham is a primary care doctor who still sees patients. She has a medical degree and a PhD in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. And in addition to being the state health commissioner, she's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota and a researcher who looks at racial health disparities. And this hour, she is taking a break from it all to join me in the studio so that we can all get to know her better and learn about her vision for improving the health of all Minnesotans. Good morning, Dr. Cunningham, and congratulations on the new job. Good morning, Angela. You stepped into the uh, position about six months ago, um, and you're already quite busy. So I want to start with, you know, why did you want to take on a job like this that has so many responsibilities? Good question.
1: You know, I had to ask myself, really, um, is this a job that I wanted at this time? Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of introspective introspection. I also talked to a lot of people, uh, including Commissioner Malcolm, about what the role entailed. Clearly, I had shifted from the university, where I was primarily a researcher, to MDH as Assistant Commissioner for Health Equity back in March of 2022, When Commissioner Malcolm decided to retire, I sort of looked around at the the context and the opportunity to serve because really my switch on leave from academia into public health was really about impact. Mm-hmm. Um I think research is incredibly important. We see its importance in in policy making, but research also takes a long time to make substantive change. And I really am somebody who is drawn to being a change maker in all the ways that you talk about in terms of addressing health inequities and given the timing the increased funding of public health from the federal government um the support of the current administration with Governor Walls um and the leadership changeover within MDH that was gonna happen with, with Jan's retirement. Um, I thought this was the time for me to come
0: into this role. Opportunity was knocking. You were were built for the moment. And and to our listeners, uh, as I talk with Dr. Brooke Cunningham, I want to hear from you, too. Our phone lines are open. What do you want to ask the state health commissioner? Do you have questions about what the Minnesota Department of Health does or thoughts about where it should be focusing its efforts? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000, or you can call 800-242-2828. Dr. Cunningham, you you started working at the Department of Health during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, As I mentioned, you were an assistant commissioner assigned to lead, um, at that time, the state's new Health Equity Bureau. Now, why was that role created, and what did you focus on in that job?
1: Yes, thank you. So, You know, the Minnesota Department of Health has had a long-going, ongoing um, interest in health equity. And so they released in 2014 a seminal report called Advancing Health Equity. I had just moved to Minnesota at that time and actually uh, came down to the Department of Health, came down to Robert Street when I saw that report because I was so excited about it because it was a place in public health which is, you know, adjacent to biomedicine, in which I was working, where people were talking about structural racism, and I was so excited to see uh, Minnesota leading health department taking up that courageous doing dance, the work, doing the work already right. in 2014, at least starting the conversation, and so in 2022, Commissioner Malcolm decided to make a new health equity bureau um, with consultation for people like Dr. Nate Chomelo, our Minnesota Medicaid director, uh, our Minnesota uh, Medicaid medical director, to be specific. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided to invest in in increasing... Um, the attention to health equity through the Bureau. And so elevating it to a co- an assistant commissioner role with leadership responsibilities within it, housing the new DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Office, our newer Office of American Indian Health um, and the Center for Health Equity, which had grown from again, this longstanding commitment to health equity from initially an office, now to a center. And so I came in to lead those efforts as well as the COVID equity team.
0: So how do you describe uh, to people what the pandemic revealed about health disparities?
1: So I think it just showed us in many ways in stark relief what we already knew, right? The problems with access, uh, the problems for uh, particular disproportionately affected populations, um, the problems with um, the gaps in care that we see, and so um, and the problems with mortality in terms of even once people get care, where the disparities are in mortality. And so um, COVID-19, uh, in many ways, the disparities and inequities that we saw were in many ways predictable for those of us who spend our time mm-hmm. looking at health equity. I think what was important was all of the conversation that we saw, particularly intersected with a uh, the events of 2020, with the death of uh, George Floyd, and all of the conversation about racial equity at the time. Um, And so with that, um, we've seen increased
0: attention at all levels and commitment to addressing health equity in new ways. And to give people some examples, and for me, it's hard to hear these numbers, but I'm imagining being a medical doctor, being aware of just the differences. Uh, We know that that racial disparities persist in everything from breast cancer to asthma, infant mortality and heart disease. But examples, uh, African-American and American Indian babies die uh, in the first year of life at twice the rate of white babies in Minnesota, twice the rate. And African-American and Hispanic women in Minnesota are more likely to be diagnosed with later stage breast cancer. And so when you hear and, and see information like this, what does that, that say to you? How does that make you feel?
1: So I, I think listening to that, I, I'm with many community members who um, appreciate us bringing a continued awareness to those statistics But I always think about the people behind the numbers. And I also, like uh, many members of our community, get frustrated with the repeated pattern and the numbers, right? Um, Part of my frustration with with research is while data is critically important, um, many of the numbers don't change that dramatically over time. And yet there still hasn't been um, the political will, in many cases, to really advance Um, solutions to health equity. We've got to go uh, bigger. We've got to go bolder. That's what it makes me think Mm -hmm. so that we can sort of get past repeating the same numbers over and over or worsening numbers that we've seen post
0: the pandemic. You still see patients, uh, which is, I think, something that's somewhat unusual for someone in your leadership position. But I think I, I get probably why. But I want to hear from you why. You know, w- where do you work, and and why is it important for you to keep having your hands in direct care uh, at a clinic?
1: Yeah. So I work at the Community University Healthcare Center. It's a federally qualified healthcare center in Minneapolis. I love it's the Kook Clinic. I love the Kook Clinic um, because those are the providers. Like when you move through medicine, um, sometimes actually it's hard to find your people. I'm a primary care doctor. I'm, I was trained in uh, medical systems that really um, focus on quaternary or the super specialized care. And, mm-hmm. and um, when I was a resident at Duke University, a lot of changes were happening with the Affordable Care Act, a lot of initiatives to really promote primary care. And um, the chair of medicine came into our um, morning rounds with uh, senior residents and asked, well, what does this mean for Duke? And And many of my colleagues around the table said, well, Duke should continue to do what Duke does well, which again is more this quaternary care. But I knew I was going into primary care. And I said to my colleagues at the table, you all know how hard it is to get a primary care doctor in Durham, North Carolina, which it calls itself the City of Medicine, and how critical primary care is uh, for addressing prevention, which is what public health does, uh, by promoting well-being, by getting in front of uh, diseases and being there to support patients uh, through their illnesses. And so um, I, I really, it was when I went into fellowship and then practicing at the cook Clinic that um I've been really able to embody that full sense of, of primary care that I was not able to do in my residency training program. And it is uh wonderful to walk with people and to have people walk with to mm-hmm. walk with me, right? And so, you know, I may talk to uh my my patients about uh obesity and we and, and we'll just joke, you know, they might say, Well Dr. Cuttah, you got a few extra pounds too. Like there's something mm-hmm. about the relationship And being a primary care doctor that I really feel is my most um, important, my most valuable tool, but there's also part of being on the front lines and dealing with um, patients who are faced by uh, living constraints, as well as then everything that we saw with changes in the healthcare system with the pandemic.
0: So informs your decision making. It does. Right, right. It's it's your superpower. I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, and it another was. superpower. Yes. You may know I'm a native of Virginia. Yes. And I see here you grew up in Richmond, Virginia. I did. Uh, what experiences did you have in child in your childhood, you think that led to you thinking about becoming a doctor? I, I always love to hear about people's childhood experiences. So what was Little Brook like?
1: Well, Little Brook was not the like 6-year-old who was like, "Oh, I got to be a doctor." But she was good in math and science and had, you know, teachers in her ears saying, "Oh, you should be a you should be a doctor because that's what a, a lot of parents do tell their kids." But I was really um concerned about uh the way in which biomedicine approached health and well-being, right, and and focused a lot on what was internal to the body rather than the external context in which these bodies move and live, and those social and economic factors that affect health, um, and so that the younger brook, and particularly the teenage brook, um, really uh, didn't have a lot of, I would say, esteem. Uh, for the medical profession, and it was only later when I worked with clinicians who were who I saw had the same values, like my colleagues at Kook Clinic. That I really decided to go into medicine and to to do the sociology degree really because those social and economic factors that shape health and bring those into my practice and into uh, change in the
0: field hmm And you were aware from your experience and, or maybe family experiences the role that that race and trust in doctors that, that played in how people access or chose you know to get uh, help from a doctor
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that were that was crucial to me in terms of growing up in, and again, Richmond, Virginia, for, for our listeners, your listeners aware that was the capital of the Confederacy. There's a lot mm. of American history that you're exposed to as a Virginia native, as you, as field you trips. Know. field yep. trips, Jamestown all day long, <laughs> as you know, Angela. And yes. so, um, you know, as a, as a black child going on those field trips, you wonder where you are, where you are in that history. But then also for me, um, one thing that I know was critically important to me was where I lived in Richmond and how that shifted. My father died when I was a child. We moved from one neighborhood to, a, to another. But I tell the story of riding the school bus across the city and seeing, particularly for middle school, and seeing how the neighborhood resources changed with the neighborhood demographics, the neighborhood's racial demographics. Mm-hmm. And communities of color as we moved through the city um, had less resources Um, Than Other neighborhoods that we move through. And so those sorts of observations were probably the the seedlings of my what I call sociological imagination, because I could see that these Mm -hmm. contexts
0: were the things that were most important in terms of shaping folks social or health outcomes. All right. If you're just joining us, uh, we're talking with uh, the state's health commissioner, Dr. Brooke Cunningham, who moved into that role in January. And I want to hear from you. What do you want to ask the state health commissioner? Do you have some questions about what the Minnesota Department of Health does or, or thoughts about where it should be focusing its efforts? And we're going to go through some of those uh, duties of the health department in just a moment. But the phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 again that's 651-227-6000 or you can call 800-242-2828 Dr. Cunningham we're getting some calls from listeners so let's talk to some of these uh, some of these listeners here in Minnesota in St. Paul we've got Molly on the phone good morning Molly what do you want to tell us or share with us
2: Good morning um, commissioner thanks so much for taking the job i've really enjoyed what you've had to say so far about our state um I'm wondering what we're doing to help people keep our health insurance every month. Um, I think Medicaid just um, kind of rolled back their provision that people did not have to reapply for health insurance every month. And now they're going to have to do that again. And one of the things that I think we got right during the pandemic was that we actually allowed people to not have to fill out paperwork every month. So they could spend more of their time and energy focusing on how to get their primary care and then how to get their medications and that kind of thing instead of how to keep their health insurance to do those things.
0: All right. So Molly's asking about uh, eligibility for Medicaid and insurance issues. What are, what are your thoughts?
2: Yes.
1: Thank you. You know, we've we've shared those worries, Molly. Right. Because um Having coverage is really important to people's care, um, and people often uh, worry about the cost of care when they don't have coverage or may delay care if they don't have coverage. And so I know the Department of Human Services has had a lot of initiatives to make sure that people don't lose their Medicaid coverage as we've come out of the public health emergency. One thing that we have seen and, and a lesson that they are, are taking from the Minnesota Department of Health is our connection with community-based organizations. During the COVID pandemic, part of the way that we reached out to people in a more robust way was through partnering with community-based organizations. And we funded, um, again, using the federal dollars that we had available to us, a number of community-based organizations to get vaccination testing and information out. And using that model, we've seen the Department of Human Services also draw on many of those same types of organizations to get information out about Medicaid, Medicaid, Re-enrollment, continuously uh, continuing your enrollment. There've been changes within the legislature to to keep people uh, on continuous enrollment, particularly kids. So those are those are important moves, and and so we definitely want to support those Minnesotans that that all of us who need insurance coverage, but particularly um,
0: Minnesotans, are more vulnerable Minnesotans who often find themselves on Medicaid. So what concerns do you have about health care affordability? And, and have you seen the cost of health care affect some of your own patients who you are seeing in, in clinic? What are you hearing from them?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, given the patients that we serve in a fairly qualified health center, we serve a, a spectrum of patients. But you know, it is not unusual for patients to delay labs or to ask the cost. And and Mm -hmm. medical care is so complicated based on the number of different plans. It's hard for an individual provider actually to tell you what this will actually cost an individual patient. Um, But I've seen people, patients, not refill their insulin or or ration out their insulin. So the cost of care is something that at MDH we do look at. And we had a uh, A budget proposal this year to work with partners to think about uh, healthcare affordability. And so there will be a a new uh, work group or center to look at that. Um, And so we have researchers looking at that. And what we want to do at MDH is to be a resource for our policymakers to make good decisions, evidence-based decisions about what are our strategies to make sure that we can Um, try to control health care costs, given that they
0: continue to grow as a part of the budget. As we look at uh, some of the the, uh, roles of the Department of Health, what the department does and doesn't do – I see here in my notes, as commissioner, you oversee about 1,400 people working for the health department here in the Twin Cities and in seven offices around the state. And there is a really long list of services provided, uh, everything from some administrative stuff, issuing birth certificates, very important, monitoring and responding to infectious diseases, extremely important, to regulating nursing homes and hospitals. Um, so a, a lot of things there, but also here in this list, uh, monitoring systems, measuring quality Proposing reforms, overseeing policy, and, yes. and this is what you're talking about, being the ear, in the ears of people who can make policy changes that will impact people in a big way. That's right. And our legislative uh, partners
1: um, call on us, call on our health policy bureau. Um, And have given them, you know, through the legislative process, uh, a task to do and complete to sort of answer many of these top priority questions that are the questions that all Minnesotans are are having in terms of how care is delivered in a way that reaches all Minnesotans, that is high quality, uh, that is cost effective, that is timely, right? Mm -hmm. We see a lot of challenges with access to care, particularly um, in, in greater Minnesota and more rural areas, where we see hospital closures, um, particularly OB units closing, and so our team of, of talented, uh, dedicated staff really do uh, provide do the actual research and then uh, talk to our policymakers about about that. So that's part of the list,
0: too. Ensuring that rural Minnesotans have access to care. So assigning staff to look at the challenges and making sure that policymakers know about it. That's right. And then to come up with some some interventions, right? So, And some of those include
1: sort of promoting rural training tracks or promoting loan uh, repayment for individuals who are working in healthcare in rural settings, right? In addition to those analyses about what the market is looking like for health care delivery in greater
0: Minnesota. Let's take another phone call as we talk with our uh, Minnesota Department of Health Commissioner, our Health Commissioner, Dr. Brooke Cunningham, who moved into the position in January, taking your phone calls at 651. 651- or you can call 800 242 2828. In Hopkins, we have a listener on the line. This is Heather calling in. Good morning, Heather. And what's your question or what did you want to share?
2: Good morning. And thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I am a public health professional myself. And I think something that we saw in the pandemic uh, really exacerbated a lot of underlying issues for public health professionals, for the public health workforce. Um, And added to it, including, you know, collective trauma, moral injury, burnout. And I'm really curious um, how Dr. Cunningham um, plans to address um, the well-being of the public health workforce. Thank you.
0: Great question. We've done many uh, talk shows about um, what... Uh, healthcare professionals, uh, particularly nurses, have endured during the pandemic and coming out of it, uh, mental health professionals as well. And so what are your thoughts about how we can take care of our our healthcare workers better?
1: Right. And and I, I really do appreciate this question, because when people ask me about what my priorities are as commissioner, I do list attending to um, employee well-being or the well-being of the public health workforce as, as top of mind. We've talked a lot about uh the healthcare workforce critically important to think about their well-being but as uh the caller speaks to um it was a very challenging time during the pandemic for again employees who have a high commitment um and are serving the state and it was a particularly challenging time not in not the least of which was the politics but also of course the hours mm-hmm. um uh, and not always being uh seen and sometimes really um uh, disparaged in, in public spaces. And so um, part of my goal is to really to really take a deliberate, intentional approach to employee well-being. Um, at MDH, well, within our public health system, we have um, MDH, which is the Minnesota Department of Health at the state. But mm-hmm. we also have a number of local public health um, departments, county counties, mm-hmm. community health boards, right, at the county level. And so we are a... Um, We are a varied public health system, and so um, part of what MDH can do is provide technical assistance to those local public health um, authorities and departments around some things around the public health workforce for me as commissioner at our agency with like you say 1400 i've seen other estimates that are mm-hmm. that are <laughs> higher than that and 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 we will grow it through our legislative proposals is really to think about the ways that not only people can uh, recover from what they've been through for the last 3 years but also to again find the joy of work and to do it in a very deliberate fashion and so one of the things that we are going to put forth very shortly is is we're actually going to hire for the first time a workforce director to really focus on uh, the culture of the agency and employee well-being. I also want to make sure that uh, people are able to meet their individual goals for themselves in their work at MDH, right? Because um, work is not... um, people are giving so much to the agency, mm-hmm. we have to make sure that they can achieve their own personal goals in their work with us. And so being very deliberate about those approaches.
0: So by keeping your the, your own workforce, your agency healthy and... and- going at 100%, that makes the department stronger, right? Yes. And it's also setting an example, right. right? And, and recognizing right. The, the need to give that attention. Right. right. Uh, another phone call, uh, this coming from, um, maybe is it Columbia Heights? Uh, this is Bonnie that's on the phone. Hi, Bonnie. Good morning.
3: Good to be on the on and to be able to talk to you. Congratulations, Dr. Cunningham. Thank you.
0: What's your question, Bonnie?
3: Uh, I'd like to talk about the health care workforce in our hospitals yes. as a community mm. pastor in a 1st ring suburb, I know too many people who have spent one or two nights on a gurney, whether that's in the ER or Mm -hmm. in a hospital hallway. And um, for elderly patients especially, but for anybody with cardiac, respiratory, kidney issues, uh, that kind of situation is very difficult. And I know it stresses the hospital staff, and I know it stresses the patients. And I don't know what can be done if your department has any role in that.
0: Thank you. That's uh, Bonnie calling in from Columbia Heights. Again, another question about the the, the health and and the staffing levels that we're right. seeing in clinics and in hospital settings. A lot of patients have not had good experiences when they have re- had, had to get health care in the That's last right. couple of years. And so how does this roll up to you? What can you do about that? That's Dr. right.
1: Kandiam? No, no, no. Thank you. And, and it is um, it is definitely a challenge that spans. Um, multiple agencies. So, again, there's the Department of Health, there's the Department of Human Services, which is our Medicaid agency and has been direct care and treatment, um, as well as uh, the welfare of, of more vulnerable Minnesotans. And then there's our Commerce Agency. And and we can think about things in terms of um, strategies, joint strategies with hospital decompression, which is what we did during the COVID pandemic. And M- MDH played a central role in that. Um, what does that mean? hospital decompression, Mm -hmm. when we have like a lot of people in filling all the beds in hospitals. So how do we, and then often when we think about transferring patients out, a lot of patients can't go home, right? They have to go to skilled nursing facilities or other sort of long-term care. And often um, we have a bed shortage there. We have a staffing shortage there. So what we focus on at MDH really is um, thinking as a partner with our other agencies that provide primary care delivery, um, thinking as a partner with our other agencies as we think about what sort of services are covered in network, right? And and that's a critical point for the transfer of care, particularly as we think about behavioral health or, or mental health. But also, I have to say, at, at MDH, we have to really focus on prevention. So we keep people out of the hospital in the first place. And so that takes mm-hmm. us back to the previous question about Uh, coverage and making sure people have coverage, but also about navigating people, right? A lot of folks miss their care. And when you miss care, sometimes what happens is you miss an opportunity to intervene before it becomes so serious that you have got, got to present at the hospital. And so At MDH, we really focus on sort of going a little bit upstream to make sure we navigate people uh, to care so that they can get in before it gets too serious and working with community-based organizations around that and then serving as a data partner as we think about strategies around hospital decompression or supporting hospitals.
0: I want to ask you about something that was in the news last week, uh, a big story. Um, The State Health Department uh, one of the, the the duties of that department, one of the roles, um, the department tracks abortions. And last week in its annual report to the state legislature, uh, we learned that the number of abortions increased by 20% in 2022 here in Minnesota. And most abortions were sought by Minnesota residents, but about 16% mm-hmm. of them were among people coming from outside of the mm-hmm. state. And so what are uh, the health department's priorities, your priorities around reproductive rights in this, this post-Roe? wade landscape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you think?
1: I think it? part of the success of the legislative session were all the proposals to to make sure that uh, Minnesota remained a state in which people could access reproductive care equitably and fairly across um, all of their reproductive care needs. Right, and so we want to maintain those those rights. Um, to, to dignity, to have a child when you want to have a child, um, or to not have a child, if that is your choice in the state of Minnesota. And so that is, uh, what we, what we see as a state and again, it's a collective effort, um, not just the Minnesota Department of Health. We primarily in our uh, children and family sections really focus on supporting families in general. Uh, We, of course, look at maternal mortality. Um, We have uh, looked at infant mortality in the past we look we support families with WIC so nutrition uh, for women infants, and children. Um, we support families whose children have special needs or were uh, diagnosed with a birth defect at, at birth and so we do a lot of things that are sort of downstream in terms of supporting uh, families but we do again on the upstream side primarily look at the research uh, factors around uh, reproductive care access and we know that you have For good health outcomes, people need to be able to access reproductive care. If you don't, there's harm.
0: Back to the phone lines. Let's talk to more listeners. In Minneapolis, we have Yelena on the line. Good morning, Yelena. Thank you for waiting. And what did you want to ask or share?
2: Hi, good morning, Um, Dr. Cunningham. I just first want to say thanks for being on here. I just graduated from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, and you spoke at our commencement. So um, it's great to hear you again. Uh, My question is... Uh, what you hope to accomplish in the first year, um um something maybe that you that hasn't been accomplished by previous administrations or something that you're looking forward to getting done?
0: Oh, great question. Uh you're six months in. What what's on your list of, of goals? Right. So six months and
1: so thank you for uh the question and and glad to be in conversation with you again outside of the commencement. Um uh, six months in, you know, when you first come in as a new commissioner, you land right in the start of a, of the budget year. And this was a big budget year. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, part of my focus for the first six months is really moving a lot of our legislative budget proposals across the finish line. And, and I think we actually really had a, a strong year for MDH with the legislature. And so I'm very proud that we were able to get a lot of our goals accomplished, which includes, you know, maintaining, um, and sustaining funding for the foundational capacities of public health, like maternal health, like uh, chronic conditions and injury prevention, like environmental health, getting that money, but also emergency preparedness money. Um, we often talk about public health, that it goes from these cycles of of panic, right, mm-hmm. which was the pandemic and neglect. And so making sure that our local partners um, had additional resources to continue the work and clearly always more resources Uh, are needed because public health has been underfunded. And so my focus will continue to be on, on that, but that's not new for any public health commissioner. I think where my emphasis will be as I continue to think about equity is really about building out Um, community collaboration. So beyond community engagement and even beyond collaboration to probably co-design so that we are more accountable as a department to our broad community partners, right? And we definitely have healthcare partners that previous callers have talked to us about sort of the challenges within the healthcare workforce and hospitals right now. We definitely have healthcare partners, but we also need a broad spectrum of partners. You know, uh, a chaplain just called, in so fa- the faith community, community-based organizations being broader, even the private sector, and hoping to have some conversations about with um, our Fortune 500 companies about their their stake, right, in population health and community health. So those- Everybody. What everybody. You do over there? Right, right? everybody. Because, you know, public health- is, is everybody. It needs to mm-hmm. be bipartisan. It needs to be public and private. It needs to think about um, upstream factors like education, housing, food. So, um, really, uh, uh, and MDH has been committed to those spaces, but really uh, more sustained engagement now that, again, the pandemic, hopefully, knock on wood, right, is, is fading. Behind to, us, we hope. To, right, right, that we have more time to get into those spaces. And then the one thing that I would also add that we're seeing is that we do have to be, um, have timely, accurate uh, data that we can respond to with our operations. And I really care a lot about um our data and probably that is just a vestige of of me as a researcher but how do we think about social risk and not just sort of individual level social terms of health but community determinants of health and how do we bring that into our work and into our operations so i talk a lot in the department about social risk about data modernization, which also includes informatics as big data has become, is, is what we're going to see, which is the data of the future. How are we going to position ourselves uh, to respond to, to big data and take advantage of it and be mindful of the security concerns that we need as we do that for for public health?
0: Let's take another phone call. Uh, this is coming from Spring Lake Park. Blaine is on the phone. Hi, Blaine. Go ahead with your question, or uh, do you have a story to share?
3: Uh, more of a question. And congratulations, Dr. Cunningham. You seem like you're going to be a fantastic health commissioner. Thank you. Um, I, I have so it's it's kind of a two similar questions. One is for our minority health outcomes here. Are our health outcomes worse in relation to the the white population? Um, is it simply because they uh, it, it seems so bad because of you know how how well some of the affluent do here? Or is it actually worse in places like uh, Georgia and Alabama? So in other words, if you're a minority in, in Georgia or Alabama, do you see wealth or e- even uh, worse outcomes here than you would down there? And then similarly, is it uh, if you're a minority in, say, a wealthier area like Rosetta, do you see the same kind of disparity versus the the Caucasian population there that you do you know, say in North Minneapolis um, Mm -hmm. versus the white population, or is it more of a socioeconomic issue?
0: Mm. Good question. Uh, Blaine there in Spring Lake Park uh, asking something that that's part of your area of expertise. You've researched health disparities. And so what is your take on the reasons behind these health disparities? Yes.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And and ever since I came, when I was a fellow, because I came to Minnesota as a postdoctoral fellow and I, I remember the first sort of uh, presentation that I did to a big audience. This question came up, and that was 10 years ago, right? Like, like how does Minnesota compare to other places across the nation? Why are things like, so bad? In are Minnesota- we beat
0: Mississippi. Right, right, right.
1: right. <laughs> are, why are things <laughs> right. so bad in, in Minnesota? And, and I think um, the reasons are very similar across contexts. It's actually often being locked out of opportunity, Right. It's being locked off, uh, out of social, economic and political opportunity uh, for black indigenous uh, people and other people of color. And so the answers remain the same across all of these all of these contexts. And so we can look at some of the, the patterns that we see around the state. Um, I think it's greater than 75 uh, of, percent of white Minnesotans have a home. Right. I think it's less than a quarter. Of Black Minnesotans, mm-hmm. you know, have home ownership, have home yes. ownership right? Yeah, have not have right. a home, but have own ownership. a home, own, mm-hmm. own a home, um, and so and so. When you think about that, and the long-standing relationship between home ownership and wealth accumulation, when you think about neighborhoods that uh, are predominantly minority, and in the investment in those neighborhoods in terms of green space. Uh, or how we finance our school systems um, locally versus other sort of uh, metrics; those are parts of the reasons and the ways in which uh, people of color get locked out of of opportunity and things that we have to navigate. And so, um, so to to the caller's to the caller's question, I say the answers are very similar
0: um, compared to other states, particularly those in the South. We're doing. Better or worse?
1: So 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 regionally I can't you know, I don't have it in front of me, Angela, to so say regionally compared to, to mm-hmm. others, are we doing better than we're but the, the, the root causes are the same, right? And so we have to make sure that people have have access to opportunity and that we proactively address what has been historical cumulative disadvantage. Well
0: I think it is common for people to think of health as a personal responsibility. Uh, we make choices about our lifestyle, about what we eat, whether we exercise or quit smoking. But how does just focusing on that personal responsibility, doesn't that leave a lot of things out? It does. It does. And part of the
1: work, again, longstanding ongoing work at the Department of Health is to really um, deliberately talk about the narrative around what causes what contributes to good health, what contributes to optimal health. and And we know that health behaviors are just a portion of the pie That contribute, and really, these social and economic factors are the main pieces of the pie. It's very hard to make, uh, to be healthy in unhealthy environments and unhealthy living conditions.
0: All right. uh, Here's another phone call from a listener in Minneapolis. Antoinette is on the line. Hi, Antoinette. Thank you for waiting. And what did you want to ask the health commissioner?
4: Oh, yes. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Dr. Cunningham, for the work that you're doing in your new role. Congratulations. Uh, So I'm a certified mentor Navigator, and uh, recently I was privileged to hear uh, Dr. Nathan Camulio talk about the report that he was a part of, the Building Racial Equity Within the Walls of Minnesota Medicaid. So it's calling out um, disparities, obviously, in limited access to health care for Black communities. And within that report, there was a call to action to support navigators like myself in the community um, to push this initiative forward so that, um, you know, the demographic can, you know, have access to health insurance. And so I just wanted to know, one, if you are familiar and have any involvement in the work that's being done there, and two, do you have any, um, maybe like guidance for someone like myself who is wanting to, you know, make impact and expand my reach? I'm one person um, now. I hope to grow a team so I can, you know, reach more people But it just seems to me that the need is so great. Not quite sure where to start. Have reached out maybe in some points with um, community clinics and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of it just doesn't seem to be the need. And it's really confusing because Mm -hmm. the data doesn't match um, the responses that I'm getting from community um, organizations who service the BIPOC demographic, which is who I'm trying to reach. So I just you know wanted to know if you have any insight on that and um, where Mm -hmm. things
0: are going with that report. Thank you, Antoinette.
4: Yeah, thank you, Antoinette. I think
1: that's part of the question that, you know, I put out and have been asking in terms of my research, even before I came into this role, right, is that we know that there's a need. (laughs) The need has been well documented multiple times, including in uh, Dr. Tremolo's report, building equity into the walls of Medicaid. Um, And so how can we incentivize a response? Action. Action in a bolder way. And that is the place where policy policy comes to place. That's where I can serve as a role, even when things are not directly within the sphere of control of the Minnesota Department of Health, but they certainly are within the sphere of influence. And so what are the ways that we can incentivize uh, healthcare systems, um, healthcare plans, to draw on uh, navigators, to draw on community-based organizations, to draw on community health workers, right? These are demonstrated needs, demonstrated solutions, let me say, that, that have been demonstrated in the literature but are, to your point, underutilized. And so we have to think about how do we uh, bring people together in a ways to understand why are you, right? These are demonstrated solutions. Why are we underutilizing? And then and then solve those through policy solutions.
0: In North Minneapolis, uh, Jasmine is on the phone. Good morning, Jasmine. What, your... Go uh, what is your? Go ahead. What is your question for our health commissioner, Dr. Brooke Cunningham?
4: Hi. Good morning.
2: Um, I am wondering, as an individual, um, I'm a neonatal nurse. Hmm. Um, I'm white, so I recognize that I can't be aware of um, all the aspects of. Healthcare, but what can I do as an individual nurse to make sure that I give the best care to all the babies I care for? Because um, I know the, you know, mortality rate is much higher in um, people of color and uh, babies. So what can I do as an individual nurse um, to affect change and to be as equitable as possible?
0: So, Jasmine, it sounds like you have an understanding. You, you've you heard the statistics, you're aware of the differences, but you're you're wondering about the action, too, what's available to, to help you? Yes, what's mm-hmm. in my control. Right. All right. Thank you, Jasmine. Uh, a neonatal nurse working with little babies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I, No, I love that question, because that's the question we all have to ask ourselves, right? We all have a sphere of influence. We all go into different environments, whether they be environments that are work environments or community environments. And so, so what can we each individually do? And that is the question everybody, right, who is mm-hmm. listening, I hope, will ask themselves. And there's actually a lot that people can do at an individual level. And and the one thing that you know I talked about, and particularly talked about, as as um, people that I were I was coming into contact with, them, particularly after the killing of uh, Mr. Floyd, was about. Um, understanding the history, right? And, and understanding what people are talking about when they say structural racism, right? Um, really being introspective about uh, the factors that shape your own worldview, right? I have the factors when I caught the bus across school. I have the factors of growing up in um, in, in Virginia. But what are the things that have shaped our perspectives? And what things uh, can we be critically introspective to, to really try to figure out what our blind spots are? And so there's always the self-work and the self-study. But the other thing that I say is we are all people in organizations often um, that that um, particularly in healthcare, right, that covers a large number of people um, that is um, that is a economic uh, resource and also has political power. And so how can we show up within these spaces, within our organizations, with people who share our interests in advancing equity and push? Right. So so there's the leading up the lead the leading up, right, for frontline folk to lead up for with their supervisors, managers, and their leaders to say, this is important. What are we going to do different? How are we going to get beyond what we have done mostly, which is training
0: to significant systems change and accountability for our patients? So Jasmine should be asking her supervisors, her managers, she should, like the question she's asking you, like, what I, are we doing?
1: Yes, and her colleagues, right, because I mm. think this is the thing. Um, part of Part of why I became a physician in addition to a sociologist is I recognize who physicians listen to, right and they often listen to other physicians right and and Jessica, as a nurse, her colleagues often will listen to her mm-hmm. over other people. And so really having those critical dialogues with the people who are in your space, whether they are at the water cooler at work, hybrid on Zoom, or at the, you know, dinner table um, at home.
0: That may have more impact than, than Jasmine realizes, mm-hmm. just having the conversation exactly. and asking the questions, right? Yes. Uh, before we run out of time, one more, one more phone call from a listener. In White Bear Lake, uh, Leanne has been waiting. Leanne, thank you for calling in. What did you want to ask or share the health, with the health commissioner?
2: Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. And this is a dream conversation for me, Dr. Cunningham. Every single thing you have addressed here is exactly what I have been thinking about and and working on. Um, the one I really want to ask you about is you mentioned the fact that doctors are moving away from primary care um, for many, many reasons. And I'm thinking, you know, with the nurses that have been so disillusioned at the bedside mm. and in hospital and some clinic care, um, I belong to a group of nurses transforming healthcare, care, and we're looking at can we have nurses move into that primary care role mm. in um, urban and rural areas that are underserved particularly? Um, what are your thoughts about nurses being able to be um, a, a, a connection to patients that is all of the things you said, primary care, holistic, that time and trust that has to happen in the relationships that are needed to create health.
0: Thank um, you. Just Thank wondering you. what
2: your thoughts are.
0: Yeah, Thank that's uh, Leanne in White Bear Lake, uh, the influence that nurses have and can have uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, Leanne. Thank you for that question. You know, I work with nurses every day
0: at Coop Clinic, Advanced
1: Practice uh, Nurses, and and they are providing fabulous, oh, high quality primary care to to our patients. Um, and what I really appreciate about the question is how can we go uh, different and bolder uh, with our models of care delivery? And I think that can include nurses, but that can include other other types of providers as well. One of the things that we talk about a lot. Um, which was a problem before the pandemic, worsened during the pandemic is mental health, and there's an incredible shortage in terms of another shortage area, mm-hmm. right, in the healthcare uh, spectrum in terms of behavioral mental health providers, and we know some of the challenges that our previous caller um, sort of alluded to around around trust with with patients, and a lot of uh, uh, patients of color. Uh, want to see a provider that has the same sort of cultural background that they do. And so how do we sort of um, expand provider coverage in ways that uh, still provide appropriate levels of services, right? Like um, someone with a serious mental mental illness needs a psychiatrist, but there are other models for mental well-being, peer-to-peer models, right? Mm -hmm. We talked again about the chaplain, you know, elders, you know, you know, the grandmothers in the community. Like, so how can we think more innovatively about who provides care and, and, and also creating the system so that people aren't, are actually paid for that expertise and that experience and their service in that way?
0: Dr. Cunningham, we are out of time, but I am so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to be with us uh, this hour on NPR. We've been talking with our new commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Health, Dr. Brooke Cunningham. Thank you to our listeners who phoned in. And again, Dr. Cunningham, thank you for your work. And we look forward to see what you do as a leader here in Minnesota. This conversation today was produced by Maya Beckstrom. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9.